Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the wonderful privilege that we have because of your grace on our country still, although sometimes I do believe we don't deserve it, but we do still have your grace and the freedom to assemble together for the purpose of looking into now this final chapter of the book of Revelation, also, of course, the final book of the entire Bible. We know, Father, that your words are faithful and true and that your word never returns to you void. And so we pray that you will bless each of us who has gone through this entire study, reading and hearing and, and keeping the things which have been written and revealed to us in this precious book. And we ask that you would bless us because that was the promise you gave to us at the beginning of this book in the first chapter. And Father, we also pray for your blessing now upon what we will read and hear about in this last chapter. Use all that we have learned this year, Father, we pray, to strengthen our faith in the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And also use it to make us more keenly aware of the exciting days in which we are privileged to be living. I believe these are the most exciting days that any people have ever lived in. I pray, Father, that you would use this study to help us also to yield fully to the Holy Spirit so that he might be free to us in our spiritual growth. And I pray too, Father, that this study be used to help us to rearrange our priorities so that we truly will seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And now I ask that you would go before us, pave the way so that I can speak quickly and clearly. And Father, if there's anything in my mind that doesn't need to be spoken, take it away. We want only what you have to teach us through your word, by your Holy Spirit. For we do pray in Christ's name, for his glory. Amen. In the last chapter, not only of the book of Revelation, but also of the entire Bible, the Apostle John continues here with his description of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, or in other words, heaven. And he had begun, remember, he had begun this description of our heavenly abode in chapter 21, which we looked at last time. The new Jerusalem will come down from God out of heaven. We learned that in chapter 21, verse 2. And it will be established eternally on the new earth. It will actually be on the earth, not hanging above it like they speculate perhaps will take place during the millennial kingdom. But the new Jerusalem will come all the way down and it will establish itself on the new earth. And this will be where the redeemed saints of all the ages will live eternally. Not just the church saints, but the Old Testament saints, the millennial saints, the tribulation saints, and any other saints we might have missed. The saints of all ages will spend eternity in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. With the completion of this 22nd chapter of this marvelous apocalyptic book, everything which God has sovereignly determined that you and I need to know about him, about his son, and about his mighty plan for us in this present life and in our future life. Everything has been fully revealed and recorded. And now we merely await the fulfillment of all that he has said. So we are brought to the end of man's journey. And that journey has not been a smooth one by any means, has it? It has not been a straight one. But many, and many questions after we finish this book. Many questions are still going to be left unanswered. I mean, you can come to me with a lot of questions that I would just have to say, well, I really don't know. 
and a lot of problems yet remain unsolved because God has not supplied us with every single answer to every single question. He has merely told us what he sovereignly knows we need to know for this life. Yet when redeemed men and women enter into the eternal state, they will be brought back into fellowship with their creator and all of the unanswered questions and all of the unsolved problems of all of the ages will have their solutions. Now in our look at chapter 21 last week, we discussed John's description of the eternal beauties of our future home in the New Jerusalem. We, um, we merely had a peek actually into the inside of the New Jerusalem. We saw there um, the golden street. That was about the only thing that we saw in the inside of the city. Most of what we looked at last week had to do with the external appearance of the New Jerusalem. We looked, for example, at the wall of the city, which we found out was made of what kind of stone? Who remembers? Nobody. No, the wall. The wall is made of jasper. The foundations to the city or the foundations to the wall are made of the different stones, the 12 precious stones, and they have inscribed on them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learned that there uh, are 12 gates in that wall, three on each side. And those gates have inscribed on them the names of the 12, what, tribes of, of Israel. And each gate is made out of a giant pearl, exactly. Then we learned about the measurements of the city and that it's actually going to be a 1,500-mile square cube. Absolutely tremendous. It doesn't matter you know, that it goes high because in our glorified bodies we can travel just as easily ver vertically as we do now horizontally. Well, even easier than we do horizontally in our physical bodies. So basically we had a look at the external beauty of the city. The only thing we really saw inside the city was that transparent, pure gold street, the one street that goes through the center of the New Jerusalem. But now, in chapter 22, we enter through John's eyes into the heart of the city itself where we are given a brief... Now, he doesn't tell us a lot of details because, again, God probably thought if we knew too much, we'd be no good for this world because we'd be too anxious to get there and our focus would be fixed on there. You know, Paul doesn't help us out at all on heaven. You know, we wouldn't really know anything much about heaven at all if it weren't for these last two chapters in Revelation. Paul got to go there, <laughs> but he said it was just too much to even talk about. He wasn't even allowed to tell us about it. God wants our focus to be on serving him in this earth and not to get our, our mind too much. Well, of course, we are to focus on things above but not to want to go there so badly that we're no good down here. They say too heavenly-minded and no earthly good. Anyway, we do just get a brief glimpse into the inside of the city to see the splendors which have been prepared for us there by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are eight divisions. Normally, at this time, I would have the outline up there, but uh, I don't. So you'll just have to remember it. I got carried away on this outline, so it consists of eight parts. You'll never remember these till you get your notes, but we will look at flowing water in verse 1, fruitful wood in verse 2, forever wonders in verses 3 to 5, the faithful word in verses 6 to 10, the finished work in verses 11 to 16, the final welcome in verse 17, the final warning in verses 18 to 19, and then the final word 
in verses 20 to 21. Now, who can repeat that? <laughs> so let's begin by looking at the flowing water uh, in verse 1. Chapter 22, verse 1. It says, And he showed me. Now, who is the he? Who remembers who the he is? It's an angel. One of those seven bowl angels showed John a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the vile angel, or the bowl angel, who had appeared to John back in chapter 21, verse 9, now takes John, and remember, he took John in the Spirit, so John somehow or another is in the Spirit, to show him a pure river of water of life, which consists of clear, sparkling, clean water. Now, this crystal clear water originates, we learn, from the very throne of God and the throne of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God and the Lamb are sharing the same throne because they are both God. Now, because this river flows from the source of life himself, we know that this water contains the very essence of life. In John 7, verse 38, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you remember, had spoken about the Holy Spirit in terms of being a river, you know, symbolically speaking. He had said, he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow, what? Rivers of living water. And then in the next verse, verse 39, John made it clear that the Lord there was speaking about the Holy Spirit. So the third member of the Trinity is also in this verse. You know, you might say, well, where's the Holy Spirit? We've got the throne of God and of the Lamb. Well, the Holy Spirit, I do believe, is represented by this river of flowing water, this crystal clear, pure river. Now, we learned last week that the new earth will have no more sea, but that does not mean that there will not be any water. Evidently, according to John's vision and the inspired word of God, our Creator is going to continually pour out upon the heavenly city for the benefit of his redeemed citizens the pure water of life and it will be sent forth from his throne to give perpetual life and cleansing and beauty not only to the city but also to its citizens and then no doubt it will flow out from the city and go out into the uttermost parts of the new earth probably branching out you know into various streams and so that it will water the entire new earth so that the new earth will be a well-watered paradise of abundant resources and very lush vegetation literally a paradise well as water remember when the lord was pierced in his side by one of the roman soldiers after he had died as water flowed of course blood and water flowed as water flowed from the side of the lamb on the cross, so will a pure river of water of life flow eternally from the lamb on the throne. So just like the water flowed out to cleanse us and to purify us and to energize us, it was a fountain of cleansing and refreshing, so will it eternally flow out from his throne during the eternal state. So if you have ever wondered if you will drink in heaven, what is the answer to that question? Yes, you will drink in heaven. 
And if you've ever wondered if you will eat, now, I mean, that is definitely a concern. Will we eat in heaven? <laughs> the answer is also yes, and that's what we see in the next verse. Let's look at the fruitful wood in verse 2. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So the answer, will we eat? Yes, we will eat also. I don't think we'll be carnivores, car carnivorous. We won't be meat eaters because there will be no death in heaven. So I don't imagine, you know, we'll be able to kill cows and pigs and eat them. But we will definitely be vegetarians, according to this verse. At least we'll be eating fruit. Now, I just cannot imagine that heaven would be heaven if we didn't have dessert. So I'm sure we'll have dessert, especially chocolate, right? Have to. I mean, it just wouldn't be heaven without chocolate. <laughs> the presence of the tree of life in the New Jerusalem should remind us automatically of the tree of life, which was where? Right, exactly. God had originally planted or placed in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, back in Genesis 2.9. The original tree of life possessed such amazing life-giving properties that God had to remove man, he had to remove Adam and Eve from its presence after they had sinned so that they would not live, you know, if they had plucked from the tree of life and eaten after they had sinned, what would have happened? They would have had to have lived eternally in their fallen condition. So that was God's grace removing them from the Garden of Eden and from the presence of the tree of life. In the new Jerusalem, the tree of life will again flourish, and it will be freely accessible this time to all of the saints. John tells us that here it lines the banks on either side of the river, and that has given commentators a little bit of a difficult time because they're not exactly sure what that means. If it's a singular tree, how can it line the banks of the river? Well, some have said, well, it's a huge tree that actually goes up and then branches over like that on either side of the river. Others have said, well, it's not just one tree, that there are going to be a row of trees down each side of the river bank. And I, I don't know how it's going to work. We'll find out. My answer is we'll find out when we get there. The presence of the tree of life in the New Jerusalem is, by the way, the Lord's fulfillment of one of his promises to the overcomers. Remember back in the letter to the Ephesian church, the Lord had said to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So what's another name for heaven? The paradise of God. The tree of life is a fruit tree. We're not told what kind of fruit this tree is will have on it or what it tastes like is probably some kind of fruit that we have never ever even heard of remember you know a lot of people say it was an apple that eve took but we have no idea what kind of fruit was on that first tree either the tree of life in the garden um, but we do know that these this tree or trees singular whatever it will be that it bears 12 kinds of fruit each month now wouldn't you like a tree like that in your yard Twelve different kinds of fruit each month. And apparently there's a continual supply, kind of like Elijah's porridge, wasn't it? I mean, I guess in the minute you pluck off one of the fruit, a new one just appears in its place. I mean, God can do that, no problem. 
So that's the tree of life. Oh, also it says in the latter half of that verse, if you notice, that the, even the leaves of this tree are going to be beneficial because they will bring healing to the nations. Now, the literal translation of the word healing in the Greek, the word is therapia. I'll say that slowly and see what word you think of. Therapia. Therapy. These leaves, literally it means health-giving. These leaves will have a therapeutic effect, meaning that they will keep the saints invigorated and exhilarated and healthy spiritually. It has nothing to do with our health physically because we'll be forever healthy in heaven in our glorified bodies. So the leaves promote the enjoyment of life in the New Jerusalem. They are not for the correction of sicknesses or illnesses. There would be no, there will be no sickness, there will be no death, no problems of any kind physically at all or spiritually in the New Jerusalem. And we know this because the next verse, verse 3, tells us there will be no more curse. So there won't be any of those things. Let's look at the forever wonders in verses 3 to 5. It says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The first forever wonder that we find in these verses is that there will be no more curse. The age-long curse will be gone, and there eternally will be no more death and no more sin. Now, even in the millennial kingdom, even though the curse on creation will be removed, yet we found out there still will be, what? Some death for overt sin, and there still will be sin because those born from the millennial saints who go into the kingdom in their earthly bodies will be born with still with the Adamic sin nature. And so the curse won't be completely gone, but in the eternal state, it will be. And all people will be able to thrive in their fullest vigor forever. No more geritol. No more getting tired. I wanted to read something that Dr. Henry Morris, this is a book I've recommended several times called The Revelation Record by Henry Morris. Excellent study on Revelation. But he has something interesting to say here about our possible age in heaven. Not that we'll have age, you know, like we think of age, but about what our body age will be, you know, our glorified body. Let me read what he says. He says, The scriptures are not explicit on this, but there is at least a possible implication that the apparent age of each person in the resurrection may be in, say, his or her early 30s. When Adam and Eve were created, they were mature adults, capable of raising children. Since aging and death were part of the results of their sin, they would presumably have remained at that same age at which they had been created if they had not sinned. At the same time, however, they were commanded to have children, and these would surely have grown to a similar maturity before their age would have stabilized. It also seems significant that those who were to serve as priests or Levites in the service of the tabernacle had to be 30 years old and upward. Joseph was 30 years old when he was made ruler over Egypt, and David, the man after God's own heart, became king over Israel at age 30. 
since those who are in the resurrection are also to serve as priests and kings in the millennial in the millennium it would be likely that their resurrection age would be of this same order even the lord jesus christ entered on his earthly public ministry at age 30 and went to the cross only about three and a half years later it is significant that his own resurrection body was of this same apparent age different in its glorified state but still easily recognizable the scriptures of course also teach that those who are christ will be like him when he comes again with bodies fashioned like unto his glorious body perhaps therefore although it is not explicitly taught in the scripture those who die in old age will be young again at the age of greatest vigor and those who die in infancy or youth will mature to the age of full growth and development in the resurrection in any case all things will be made new for the lord's word is true and faithful end of quote i don't know about you but i sure wouldn't mind being 30 eternally <laughs> okay let's see what else we've got now um we're told here that the throne of God and the Lamb shall be present eternally. So, of course, how could, how could the, the new earth possibly continue under the bondage of corruption? Or how could there be any sin or any curse when eternally the very throne of God himself and the Lamb will be present among men? Then the end of verse 3 tells us that his servants shall serve him. So life in the future eternal state is not going to be merely a life of rest and singing and playing little harps. It's going to be a life of, I mean, that would get boring after a while, wouldn't it? We're going to be serving. It's going to be a life of productivity and service. There's going to be vigorous intellectual activity as well. I mean, now we use so such a little portion of our brain, it's pathetic. But there we'll have our full capacity, and so we'll constantly be stimulated and challenged intellectually. There'll always be new things to learn. And our faculties will be intensified to, uh, to a wonderful degree. God is going to touch our, our dull minds, that's being polite, <laughs> so that we will be able to grapple with the infinite mysteries of an endless universe. Now, we don't know what kind of service God is going to give to each of us. We do know he gave dominion to Adam over the entire old creation. So there is no doubt that we will have dominions over which we are going to be take, uh, taking charge. We just don't know a whole lot about what he has in store for us. But we do know that there will be abundant occasion for fellowship with one another, with all the saints of all the ages. And there will be abundant occasion for worship and singing and praising and all sorts of wonderful godly activities in heaven. And we will have plenty of time to meet and to learn to get to know one another. You know, in this life, it's, it, everything is on such a treadmill. It's such a fast rat race that we barely have time to say hello and goodbye and a few words on Tuesday. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's a shame. We hardly have time to spend with our own families, sometimes even with our own husband. My husband's usually gone all week. So, but in heaven, won't it be wonderful? No schedules, no time limits. I mean, we can just really, really get to know one another. And just think how many other millions of wonderful saints from all the ages we will get to know. And, of course, most of all, who will we get to know? 
the Lord Jesus. It tells us the crowning joy of all in verse 4 tells us that we shall see his face and we will have his name written on us. Although he is the king of the entire universe, he will always, always be accessible to his saints, his servants, the ones for whom he died because he loved them so very much. He will never hide his face from us. We will see his face. I think that's why everything is transparent, so we can always see his face, and we will never, ever have to be afraid of entering into his presence because he loves us with a love just unconditional. And this is another fulfillment of a promise made to overcomers. In Revelation 3.2, in the letter to the Philadelphian church, the Lord Jesus had said, and I will write upon him, the overcomer, who is the overcomer? The believer, the true born-again believer. I will write upon him my new name. So very possibly here in verse 4, the name that will be written on our foreheads will be his new name. Very possibly that will be his new name, the name that no man presently knows but the Lord himself. And then it tells us there will be no night, and there will be no need of, uh, because there will be no night. I mean, who is the Lord Jesus? He is the light of the world. In him there is no darkness at all. So if he's going to be eternally present with us and he is the light, how could there ever be darkness? There can't, There couldn't be. So there will never be darkness. So. We will never need any uh, candlelight. We won't need artificial light, in other words. We won't need candles. There will be no need for electricity. And the sun and the moon won't be needed, will they? The, the light of the sun won't be needed and the reflected light of the moon. So none of those things will be present, as we already discussed back in chapter 21. Now, the Lord God will give light to us in all areas of life, not just will he physically illuminate things so that we can see but he will also give light as far as personal guidance he will constantly be our guide and he, and he will give us sufficient insight that kind of light so that we can meet every need and sanctify every relationship he will give us light in all realms you know mentally spiritually physically emotionally and we will be able to love more We'll be able to love to our fullest degree, and we will be able to understand better. We'll be able to understand one another. And that's something, you know, that we all have such a difficulty with in this life. I mean, we can, we can misunderstand people so easily just because of communication problems. But there we will love and we will understand perfectly. And although we are his servants, we are also his kings. Notice that it says end of verse 5, and we shall reign, they shall reign forever and ever. So we're not only his servants, we are going to be his kings and uh, sub-kings, you know, reigning under him, and therefore each of us will have some kind of a dominion to develop and to utilize for the good of all of the redeemed and for the glory of the Lamb. Okay, moving on, let's look at the faithful word in verses 6 to 10. And he said unto me, this is still the angel, he said unto me, these things are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. And now this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking here. He says, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things. See how he's overwhelmed again that he, John, is seeing these things? And heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Makes the same mistake again, doesn't he? 
that he did back in chapter 19. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Well, beginning here in verse 6, John writes a final concluding epilogue, a final concluding passage. And this epilogue is not only really just for the book of Revelation, but it's also for the entire word of God. When the angel tells John these sayings or these words are faithful and true, really the angel there is testifying to the, valid the validity and the infallibility of the entire Bible, Revelation included. Therefore, no man is to trifle with the words of this book, this whole book, or the book of Revelation, by trying to spiritualize them away, as so many try to do, especially with Revelation, but also with many parts of the scripture. For example, those who try to spiritualize away a literal 1,000-year kingdom. They not only have to spiritualize away parts of Revelation, but they have to spiritualize away many verses in the Old Testament and, you know, say, well, we can't take these literally. No, nor is any man to reduce God's word to some kind of meaninglessness for our own day, as historicists try to do with Revelation. And they say that this book has no meaning for us today, so therefore it's not really even worth studying because everything in it has already been fulfilled in past history. How they can say that after what we have looked at, I don't know. But again, they are trifling with God's word. And many even in the church have done this. It was, in fact, the questioning and the trifling with God's word which caused sin. You know, this is what got us into the trouble we're in today in the first place was a trifling with God's word which caused sin to enter into this world in the, in the beginning when Satan caused Eve to doubt God's word, to question God's authority and the accuracy of his word. You know, when Satan said, Yea, hath God said? You know, has he really said that? And then when he twisted God's word and said, Ye surely shall not die, that was a direct contradiction of what God had said. And because of this, God concludes his entire revelation to man with a fresh emphasis on the fact that his words are what? True and faithful. His words, from the beginning of his revelation to the end, his words are, tr are true and faithful. All that he has said will come to pass, will come to pass. You can bank on it. It will. Everything he's ever said in the past that was predictive and has already happened. We've seen that it's come to pass, just like he said. So, of course, what he said about the future will also be fulfilled just exactly as he said. And not only will all these things come to pass, because his word is true and faithful, but verse 7, Christ himself states that he is coming quickly. And this is the same promise that he had given us uh, back in the beginning of the book of Revelation. This is how he, we opened up this book, back in chapter 1, verse 7. He had said the same thing, that he was coming quickly. He cometh with clouds, and every eye also shall see him. So we have the promise of his coming in the beginning, and again at the end. Christ's coming, And if Christ's coming was considered to be 
soon, which is really what the word quickly means. It means when it comes, it will be, you know, quick, sudden, sudden. If it was considered soon back in John's day, what in the world must it be considered today? Because when John wrote Revelation, that was 1,900 years ago. As we have gone through this book for the past two years, we have seen sign after sign adding up and indicating to our contemporary, with our contemporary world scene, with what's going on in the world around us, that the stage really is completely set. Completely. There's nothing left you know, that hasn't been set. It's set for the main character to enter and to begin the final act. And that main character is the Lord Jesus himself who will get the final act rolling when he returns for his church at the rapture, which is the very next event to occur on God's prophetic calendar. Well, since Christ's coming is to be here quickly, he adds a, the sixth beatitude in Revelation. Remember I told you there are seven beatitudes? Well, we now come to the sixth one in verse 7, which reads, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. The motivation to holy living is the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope, the blessed hope that should keep us pure at all times and having, you know, so that we have our sin always confessed up so that we will not be ashamed at his appearing, so that we are always redeeming our time wisely, so that we won't have to hang our heads in shame when he comes. And so the motivation to holy living among the church saints is that he could appear at any one moment in time. And the guidebook to holy living is given to us where? Right here in the Bible, in his word. We will be blessed, he is saying here, we will be blessed if we keep the sayings of this book, not only of Revelation, but of the entire book, because why will we be blessed? We will be blessed because we will be sanctified. What sanctifies us? His word. And we will become more Christ-like because his word is like a mirror, and as we look into it, we see, you know, our, we see him, and we see how we compare to him, and so we make changes through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we became, become more Christ-like. Keeping God's word, keeping this uh, book here, does not mean that we simply take what we have learned and we categorize it, you know, put it into a certain little notebook with a, a file label on it and then store it on our bookshelf somewhere at home. Keep it in a file may, maybe titled Bible Study. That is not what he means by keeping his book or keeping his word. Christ is saying that blessed is the one who catches the spirit of this book. And I pray, it is my prayer, that after having read and studied this book, especially this last one, as we have been looking at for the last two years, that you love Christ more than you ever have before, that you feel closer to him than you ever have before. You ought to have really learned how to live in the light of his glorious return. And you ought to be grateful, I hope, for all the wonders that he has told us he has prepared for us in heaven. This book ought to have motivated us and refreshed us in many, many aspects of our Christian walk. And this is what is meant by keeping the words of the prophecy of this book. God says to us, he says, you take this book and I want to, you to see my son's glory in this book. And I want you to see 
all that has been prepared for you. And I want you not to be afraid of dying. And I want you to see the urgency of the hour in which you are living. And then I want you to see the seriousness of those who reject my son in contrast to the blessedness that comes to those who do submit to him and serve him. Revelation is intended to be a book to motivate us to action. The truths that we have learned from these pages ought to have uh, shaped our lives in some fashion. Do you know that you are really, those of you sitting in this room, are really the most informed people in all of the world? I mean, you know, maybe your IQs don't measure up to some of those out there in the world, but you are the most informed people in the world on unwritten history. We know things about the future which most people out there in the world don't have a clue about. I mean, you could get on the, uh, on the news and, and tell people the things they really need to know, couldn't you? Much more than what you hear over the airwaves and see on your TV screens. You are smarter than 99.5% of the world <laughs> from what you have learned from this book. So if something hasn't been happening in your life, then all of this teaching has been in vain because it surely has not been taught just so that we can uh, be entertained, so that we can get a, you know, a thrill, so we can um, see, center on the spectacular, or that we can accumulate a lot of knowledge, you know, like what size heaven's going to be, what shape heaven's going to be. It's not so that we can uh, just do things like that. Something needs to have happened in our lives. We need to have caught the spirit of this book. If you have read and studied with us through it, then you should at some point along the way have heard the spirit of God pounding into your soul the necessity of immediate commitment to Christ, maybe a rededication of your life to him and to his work. I hope that somewhere along the line you have have sensed the urgency of the hour and have made a rearrangement in your priorities, you know, to, to put his work first and to maybe eliminate some of the frivolous things in your life, things that don't, don't count for eternity, you know, to, to build up your treasures in heaven. We need to be about the Father's business, don't we, in a very serious way while we still have the time, while there is still day, because he is coming quickly. He is coming soon. Well, to Christ's words, John then added his own testimony in verse 8 by assuring his readers, and remember his original readers were the seven churches. He assures them that he actually saw and heard the tremendous events that he has been reporting. Again, I told you last time it would be an interesting study to see how many times John says, and I saw, or and I heard. He really wants to make sure that we know he really did see and hear these things. And then once again, he became absolutely so overwhelmed by all that had transpired while he was on his little Patmos island that he fell to his knees and prostrated himself before the angel messenger. And he had made the same mistake back in chapter 19, verse 10. And I really don't believe that John was falling there so much as to worship the angel. But I believe that he was just so absolutely overtaken 
with all that he had learned and seen and saw and heard, that he felt he just must express his gratitude in some way to, to someone. And, of course, the only one around was who? Was this angel messenger. And so he just fell before him to express his gratitude. Nevertheless, it was inappropriate. And so the angel once again did come to rebuke him, or did rebuke him, and that's what he did in verse 9 when he said, worship God, you know, worship only God. I don't know, is um, Debbie up there? Is it time to flip? That's right, we got started late, didn't we? I was just getting nervous because it's so late. We got started late, I forgot about that. Well, then the angel instructs John to not seal up the sayings of the prophecy of this book, um, which is different than what Daniel was told. Remember, the prophet Daniel was told at the end of his revelation that he was to seal up the words of his prophecy because why? Well, there would be a long interval before the things Daniel had written about would be fulfilled. But it is interesting to know that ever since the turn of this century, which I can't say in a few more months, can I? <laughs> but at the turn of this century, Daniel started to be opened up. And more people have studied and understood Daniel than, you know, in this last century, these last hundred years, than they did in all the church centuries before that. Daniel is now, I believe, an open book because I believe we are in the times when we're seeing the things of Daniel about to be fulfilled. But anyway, it, was, it is not the case with the book of Revelation that it was to be sealed for a long time. The things in Revelation are written for our instruction, for all of the church's instruction from its very beginning. It's an open book for all to read with the aid, of course, of all the other books of the completed revelation of God. You know, a lot of people say, well, you cannot study Revelation because it's just too symbolic and you can't understand it. But didn't we learn that you can understand the symbols because sometimes the symbols are given right there in the context. Sometimes they're given by the Holy Spirit in the words right there. He tells us what the symbol means. But other times we have to investigate a little bit and we have to go back into the Old Testament. But I think almost every symbol we have come across, we have been able to figure out what it means. So it's an open book. It is a book which can be understood. If not all of it, we can understand at least most of it. So I think it's a very pathetic, poor excuse when people say, well, you can't study that book because you can't understand it. That's not true. You can. And it's the only book in the Bible that has that promised blessing. It's amazing. Only one with a blessing, and yet it's the one so the least people ever bother to study. Well, what have we learned as we have looked at this book? We have learned, uh, first of all, all last year, basically, basically we had a study of church history. We, we learned about the church from its apostolic beginning all the way to its apostate end. In the church of Laodicea, the age of apostasy, of lukewarmness, of liberalism. And we saw, uh, we learned about Christ taking his church to be with him. And we did a pretty extensive study on why in this study we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. We talked a lot about that, that the rapture occurs before the tribulation. And then we talked a lot about the tribulation period itself, with all of its judgments as we looked at the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments as they were poured out in abundant wrath upon the earth and how God was even in the midst of his wrath always remembering mercy, trying to draw people to him and gain their attention. We have seen Satan's man 
The Antichrist come on the scene, of course, with his cohort, the false prophet, as they deceptively captured the world and involved the whole world in a worldwide worship of the Antichrist, the worship of the beast. And we have seen the world rebel against Christ at the Battle of Armageddon and then at his return sink eternally into hell. We saw the fall of ecumenical Babylon, the one world church, which will develop after the true church is removed. We saw the fall of economical Babylon, materialistic Babylon. And we have seen the the binding of Satan for a thousand years as we took a look, brief look, at the millennial kingdom and what it will be all about, the thousand-year kingdom when Christ will literally rule on earth. And then we have seen, as we have in the last few weeks, the passing away of this old earth, this earth we presently know and live on, and its atmospheric heaven, and then the recreating of a brand new earth and a new heaven and the eternal domain of righteousness in the new Jerusalem. So as I said, you know a whole lot more, even if you get some of those things a little fuzzy in your mind, because I know sometimes the sequence is difficult to understand, but still you know a whole lot more than most people ever will know unfortunately. And we have seen also, of course, sin and death and the curse swept forever into the lake of fire. And we have seen redemption completed and paradise regained. And I, for one, am very glad that this book was included in the Bible and that it is an open book, which we are able to read and to understand because this book, again, this is the third time I've studied it in depth, and every time I still learn new things. It has given me new motivation for life, and it has given me new anticipation of what awaits me in heaven. Okay, let's look at the finished work, verses 11 to 16. It says there, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, now this is Christ again speaking here in verses 12 and 13. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they might have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. It's an amazing paradox of human character that the preaching and the teaching of the gospel message of Jesus Christ draws some to him while at the very same time what does it do? It repels others. It it repels them and hardens others. Although a great many will be saved praise the Lord during the tribulation we learn that there will be even more who determine in their hearts and their wills to rebel and to resist all the more strongly. Even when they know where the wrath is coming from, they harden themselves against Christ. And it's the same thing today, isn't it, with the preaching and the teaching of the book of Revelation. To some, 
To you all, I hope it has brought great blessing. But to many more, this book, Revelation, will repel them. And they will ridicule it. They will mock it. And it will make them angry. No book, I don't think in the whole Bible, makes men as angry as the book of Revelation. The finished work of Christ, both on the cross and in the consummation of his program for humanity, is the great divide. It's the great divide. Just as Christ's death on the cross separated two thieves for all of eternity, it continues, his cross continues to divide men. Only those who trust and believe in the finished work of Christ, we're told in these verses, can be fashioned anew and can become righteous and holy and can live eternally with him in the new Jerusalem. Apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, a person will continue to sin until at the time of his death, his character is forever fixed and it's set. You know, if, you, if a person continues to rebel and willfully disbelieve in Christ, then at the time of his death, which is the final moment that he can make a decision, his character is set in a mold. It's fixed for all of eternity. He will go on being rebellious and wicked for all of eternity. He will go on in his sinful, with his sinful heart throughout all of eternity. I know sometimes we probably have the wrong idea about that. We think that when someone dies without Christ and they get to hell, that they turn repentant and say, Oh, you know, I, I believe, I wish I could get a second. That is not true. They gnash their teeth and they close their fists and they're angry and their character gets even more and more hardened. We saw this when Satan was loosed. It didn't change him a bit or any of the fallen demons. And same thing with men living a thousand years with Christ. It only hardened them more and more. So in hell, men, they, they won't be repentant. They will be remorseful, but they won't be repentant. Same thing with Judas Iscariot. He, re, he was remorseful about what he had done, but he didn't repent of what he had done. You know, one thief on one side of the Lord died blaspheming, and he is still probably blaspheming with even more venom now in hell than when he was there on the cross. And therefore they will go on suffering forever. And now this is exactly what is meant here in verse 11 where it says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, on the other hand, let him be righteous still. The righteous will continue being righteous for eternity because their character also is fixed. They will go on throughout all of eternity being righteous and being holy. In verse 12, Christ himself then gives a promise, which is like what a father would give to his children when perhaps he goes away for a while, like when my husband used to go on a sales trip or when he was in the Navy and he was flying sometimes around the world. He would tell the children, now, if you're good and if you obey mommy, then when I come back from my trip, I'll, have, I'll bring you something. I'll bring you a gift. And so the children will behave, you hope, <laughs> that they will behave real well while daddy is gone 
And then sometimes daddy would call from overseas somewhere and he'd say, you know, to the kids, I'm coming home real soon now. I hope you have been good because I have your rewards, your gifts with me. That's what the Lord here is saying to you and I. Exactly in this verse, in verse 12, he's saying, I'm coming quickly, whoops, and I've got your rewards with me because I've kept my promise. I didn't forget. I've, I've kept my promise. I have the rewards. And we've already discussed earlier that when do we receive those rewards? At the judgment seat of Christ, after the rapture of the church and before the thousand-year kingdom. And then, I'm hurrying because of time here, for the fourth time, in Revelation, in verse 13, the Lord Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the last, the first and the end. Now, it's very interesting that he called himself this two times at the beginning of the book of Revelation, and now two times at the end of the book, he is also calling himself this, reminding us in this way that he is the beginning and the end, twice at the beginning and twice at the end. He is the creator and he is the consummator. He was before all things and he is the heir of all things. And then we read, then we have the seventh and the final beatitude, the seven of the seven. And this we find in verse 14 where uh, he, let's see, what does it say? Blessed are they that do his commandments that they might have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. In this verse and the one that follows, verse 15, we again have the twofold division of mankind. Remember I said the cross is the great divide? We have the saved and we have the lost. We have those who can enter into the holy city and those who are without the holy city, those who cannot ever enter. Now, let me see what I'm going to skip there. But uh, Those who will be without him, who will never set their eyes upon the holy city, much less be allowed to enter through its gates or eat from the tree of life, will are described for us as dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. They will never ever, they will always be without the city because they will always be where? In the eternal lake of fire. Okay, I'm going to skip some other things so that we can move on here. Let's look at the final welcome in verse 17. It says in verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. It's a beautiful invitation. Christ gives here his final beckoning. That's why, did I tell you the title for our, this lesson? is final blessings and beckoning because we have our final promised blessings in this chapter and also the final beckoning or the final invitation which is what we find right here in this verse this is the final invitation to salvation in all of the word of god it's interesting to know that the word come c-o-m-e appears how many times do you think in this chapter give you one guess right it appears seven times in this chapter the word come is probably the greatest word in the entire bible in the gospel the first time that the word come was spoken in the bible was when god beckoned noah to co go into the ark of safety where he was kept 
from the judgment which followed. And now Christ again, here at the very end of the Bible, beckons men with the same word, come. He says, come, all you who are thirsty for his living water, and all of you who have heard what he has to reveal to you in this book. And not only does Christ beckon us to come, but the Spirit says, come. Come unto Christ and receive forgiveness of your sins. And then also, who else beckons men to come? The church. See, it says, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. So the church, the bride says, come. The church says, we, we have trusted him. We have trusted Christ. And we know, we have found by experience that he does satisfy our thirst, our spiritual thirst and our spiritual hunger. And he does forgive our sins and take that guilt from off of us. And he does give us peace and hope and love and joy like nothing that this world can offer. So not only does Christ beckon and the Spirit beckons, but the church, that's our job, isn't it? We should be beckoning people to come to Christ. And the beautiful part of this invitation to come is that it is for whosoever will. God is no respecter of persons. At the end of verse 17, it says, And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. The invitation is open to everyone, regardless of who they are, what their sins have been. It doesn't matter what I mean, nobody has committed the unpardonable sin unless they die without having accepted Christ. There's no sin he cannot forgive except that one, dying without having accepted him. So he's no respecter of persons, whosoever will. All you have to do is have the desire to thirst, you know, and come and drink. Because Christ is a gentleman, he will not force his, his, himself on anyone. So therefore he says, whosoever will may take of the water of life freely. He doesn't ever force it down anybody's throat. You have to will to come and take it. But it is what? Free. The water of life freely. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. You can never work for it. It's not of works because if we worked for it, what would we do? We would boast. We would brag. We'd say, well, look what I did. I got myself to heaven. Aren't I wonderful? It's a gift. Now, this is the final welcome here in all of the word of God. And for those who refuse to come, as was the case with those who refuse to come into Noah's Ark of Safety... They will one day hear another final word. Not the word come, but the word depart. Yeah. Uh, and which would you rather hear? I don't ever, ever want to hear that word depart from me. I never do. can't imagine a worse sentence. Okay, final warning, verses 18 to 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add... Unto these things God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. We close out the book here with a very, very sober and serious warning from God the Holy Spirit. He has told us everything, God has told us everything that he intends to tell us. 
the revelation of God is complete with the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation. And therefore, no man, no woman, should ever, ever presume to add to God's completed revelation or to take away from God's completed revelation by diluting his message, you know, watering it down, or by trying to spiritualize it away, or by trying to cut out, you know, things, or explain away those portions of the scripture which perhaps they feel speak too loudly of the supernatural. You know, some people, neo-Orthodox people, try to cut out the miraculous, the supernatural. Um, nor should they um, do try to uh, cut out those things which they feel offend their humanistic prejudices and their evolutionary presuppositions. How many people dismiss Genesis chapters 1 and 2 because of their evolutionary presuppositions? You know, the cults, and this is, it's interesting that we end like this because this is the study that I plan to do next year unless the Lord intervenes, but I feel this did come from the Lord to make a study of cults using, of course, the scripture. Um, And I'm going to have to develop that over the summer, how we'll go about that. But you can be assured you will bring your Bibles and we will be in the Word of God. I would like to hopefully teach us how to witness to people who are caught in cults by using God's Word and showing how, you know, they have twisted things so that when they come to our door or if we have relatives that we can knowledgeably learn how to talk to them and witness to them. And even many Christians are caught up in things that they should not be, like the New Age movement. I'd like to do an extensive study on that. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And you know who his people are? The saints. (laughs) And many of us are destroyed because we have a lack of knowledge. Anyway, many cults, as you know, have added, they have disobeyed this solemn, serious warning at the end of the Bible, and they have added to God's word. Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddy, she has that many names because she had that many husbands, she has added her science and health with key to the scriptures, to the Bible. And Charles Russell has added the Watchtower Guide to the scripture. Joseph Smith and Brigham Brigham, Brigham Young have added the Book of Mormon. Catholics have added the books of the Apocrypha between Malachi and Matthew. And liberal theologians have taken away from the Word of God. So we have those who have added to, those who have taken away from. And both, according to God's Word, are regarded as blasphemies deserving a very serious punishment. What's he say he will do? He said he will add unto him that does this the plagues which are written in this book. Have we read about some very serious plagues? You better believe it. I wouldn't want those plagues added to me. The Bible says that the scripture cannot be broken. And that means that we cannot tamper with God's scripture. God will not tolerate having his word tampered with. And it's a very serious thing for me to have stood up here and to have said, you know, I just pray and hope I haven't tampered with God's word. When something is just an opinion, I hope I've made it clear that it's just an opinion. It's a very serious thing to teach God's word. I don't want to add any of my own thoughts to it, and I don't want to take anything away from it. 
And that's, again, what Mother Eve did. You know, she both added to what God had said. You know, because God did, he said, you're not to eat of the tree of life. But you know what? When she was talking to Satan, she said, neither are we to touch it. She added to, God didn't say anything about touching it. She could have touched it all day long. He didn't say that. He said, just not eat of it. And then she subtracted from God's word when she said to Satan, lest we die. He didn't say, I mean, that makes it kind of up in the air, right? Like, maybe we'll die, lest we die. But God had said, ye shall surely die if ye eat of the tree of life. So she did both when she uh, opened the door to sin in her life. And therefore, God is very serious. His wrath abides the same today on those who will tamper with his holy word and cut out those parts which offend them and add to it their own ideas. That's very serious business, and a lot of people will do that. They'll cut out the judgment. We don't like to talk about a literal lake of fire, so we won't, you know, we'll just dismiss it. There is no literal lake of fire. Well, I don't like to talk about it either, but if it's in God's word, I believe that that's our responsibility to teach what he says. So, and the blood, yeah. They've even taken the blood out of the hymns in the hymn books. The book of Revelation, therefore, opens with a blessing. Remember? The blessing to all of us who read and hear and keep the words of this prophecy. It opens with a blessing, and it ends with a curse on any who will tamper with it, or with any of the previous 65 books. The final word, verses 20 and 21, and we'll close. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And you all say it together. Amen. The last word from our Lord Jesus, which we have until he comes again, when we hear that trumpet sound and we rise to meet him in the air, the last word from him is, Surely I come quickly. He's overseas. And he's called us. And he said, I'm coming quickly. And I have my rewards with me. So have you been good? Because I'm going to keep my promise and I am going to come home for you. Even though his promise was to return was made some 2,000 years ago, his coming, the wonderful part for us, is that his coming is always imminent. Because quickly means that when he does come, it will be suddenly. I mean, we won't have a whole lot of time to pack a bag. (laughs) We won't even have time to barely blink our eyes. From the standpoint of eternity, his coming will be very soon. You know, he's outside of time and space. So when he says quickly to him, in light of eternity, it is very quickly. Even though on our scale, you know, it has seemed like it has been a long, long delay. But, of course, in that delay, he's been bringing many, many people into his kingdom. I'm glad he didn't come 1,800 years ago. I mean, not 1,800 years ago. I'm glad he didn't even come 100 years ago because I wouldn't have been part of his kingdom then. But his coming is sure. And when he does come, all of the events prophesied to accompany his coming as testified to him by in this book that we have just finished studying, all those things will be fulfilled speedily, and literally and certainly. And to this final wonderful promise, John could only manage to reply one word. (laughs) Amen.
And then he also said, even so, come, Lord Jesus, which turns out to be the final prayer of the Bible, a prayer for the soon return of the Lord Jesus, which, of course, is a prayer that I imagine has been echoed millions and millions of times from the lips of countless Christians down through the centuries ever since John first penned this first one, even so come Lord Jesus. You know, today more than ever we should be praying this prayer. Every day we should be praying this prayer uh, because our day is getting very, very dark indeed. It's funny I say that when all these windows are <laughs> blackened, but our, we are living in a very very dark day. But do you know which star always appears at the darkest time of the night? Yes, Venus. It's Venus. The planet Venus always appears right before the sunrise. It is the bright and the morning star. Its appearance in the sky indicates that very soon the sun will be coming up. So even though times today are very, very dark, spiritually speaking, what does that mean? It just means that very, very soon the bright and morning star will appear for his own. And who is he? Who is the bright and morning star? And the root and the offspring of David? Look at verse 16. It's none other, of course, than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, we will be removed from the darkest period of of history that mankind will ever, ever go through, and that, of course, is the seven years of tribulation. But even then, after the darkest period of all human history, after those seven years of tribulation, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, as it says in Malachi 4.2, and the Lord Jesus Christ will come and establish his 1,000-year kingdom on earth, and then eternally set up his kingdom in the new Jerusalem on the new earth to live and reign with all his redeemed saints, which I hope and pray includes each and every one of you forever and ever and ever. And so John ends this mighty, mighty book by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, to which I hope and I trust and I pray that each one of us can also say, 